There is so much money being spent in the Ohio races this year that it's hard to sort it out, but we have Seth Richardson here to sort it out today. We'll be talking about some of that on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. If it feels like we talk about this money a lot, well, it's Groundhog Day, so we're living through it over and over. <laughs> well, it seems, it seems very appropriate that the Groundhog saw his shadow and we're about to get hammered by yeah, this storm, yeah, There was right? no way the Groundhog wasn't seeing the shadow. <laughs> I'm Chris Quinn here with Seth and Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin ready for a rollicking discussion. Let's go. Does Warrensville Heights Mayor Brad Sellers face a criminal investigation after reporter Caitlin Durbin found he gave himself a tax abatement using a document containing false information? Laura, we talked about what laws could apply when Caitlin did her story. Now we know they are being looked at. Yeah, absolutely. County Prosecutor Michael O'Malley confirmed Tuesday that the matter's been referred to the Ohio Ethics Commission for review. And of course, what we're talking about is this notarized document that sellers signed claiming he was debt free, even though he owed the county thousands of dollars in property taxes when granting himself a tax abatement. So Caitlin broke the story a few weeks back. A few days later, sellers dropped out of the race to be county executive, and now he's looking looking at you know possible felony charges fourth degree felonies uh if this could come to fruition the ethics commission of course won't comment they won't say if they have opened an investigation or not but in a 2001 advisory opinion on a similar matter they warned government officials saying they're prohibited from profiting for tax abatements while they serve in office and within one year after leaving their post that seems to be spot on what we're talking about. Now, the commission can't charge someone themselves. It vets these allegations, then would go back to the prosecutor's office to decide whether to act on it. You know, I'm hearing from some people saying, why does he need to go through the ethics commission? He's the prosecutor. If somebody uses a falsified document to enrich himself, it's fraud. Why not just charge him? But then there are others saying by going this route, you take politics out of it. Mm -hmm. The Ethics Commission looks at the laws. They come back and either recommend or don't recommend charges. And then the prosecutor follows the investigator's advice. I'm not sure where I, I fall. I mean, if there is a falsified document, if he did enrich himself, it seems like it's pretty cut and dried. You could just go straight to indictment. Uh, but there are politics in this county and people do worry about them. And the thing about the Ohio Ethics Commission is we've talked about them in the past. They don't have a lot of teeth. I mean, weren't they the ones that say, hey, yeah, by the way, householders shouldn't be using his campaign funds to pay for a lawyer, but like nothing ever happens of that. So it's all well and good to point out you're not allowed to do this, but then someone has to charge you with you and it has to be prosecuted. But this does investigation may also address questions about a conflict of interest since sellers applied for this 100% tax abatement, introduced it to council and certified it on his own home. This is supposed to be reserved for teachers, law enforcement officials, firefighters, and emergency medical technicians. But seller says he qualifies because he's the public service, public safety service director. But that's a separate even issue from this signing a falsified document and conflict of interest law prohibits prohibits public officials from participating in property matters which they alone benefit there's actually a maximum penalty of six months in jail or a thousand dollar fine for that ethics violation so i mean that could get come out of this too 
Look, the former HR director for Cuyahoga County, Douglas Dykes, got convicted of a crime for falsification in secretly trying to put money back into the county coffers. I can't imagine how somebody that used the falsification to take more money for himself will not end up facing some justice. And I think it's testament to how serious this is that as soon as we reported it, it was a 24 hours later, he dropped out of the race. I mean, he surely has lawyers telling him you got you got to pay attention to this so. I, I just feel like every time this stuff happens it's like do you think we're not gonna find out i mean sometimes do, people do get away with things i'm not saying we know everything but eventually the truth comes out and then now you're looking at possible jail time because you know if he hadn't run for county executive there was no reason to be looking into his background yeah no i i'm never going to understand why if you have this in your background you would put your name up for countywide office it was guaranteed to come out if we didn't find it and caitlin because of her sharp eye she noticed his tax bill dropped and looked at why and found all those records if if she hadn't have done that I imagine the people running against him for county executive mm -hmm. ultimately would have. He shouldn't yeah. run. I it's mean, like he... the Ed Fitzgerald driver's license. Thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and the woman learn a not... lesson from this, people. Yeah, and the woman, not his wife. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibbs submitted his first annual budget by the Tuesday deadline. Lisa, does it contain any grand ideas or initiatives? People have a lot of hope that Justin Bibb is going to do some dramatic things like make RTA free or provide universal after school care or something. Anything like that show up yet? Not really. I mean, the budget that he's proposed for 2022 is not looking a whole lot different than the previous mayor's budget. Uh, Bibb submitted a $1.8 billion budget for 2022 yesterday. That's up by $23 million. Um, so far, they're expecting about $704 million in spending this year from the general fund, but only taking in $648 million in revenue. That's a $56 million shortfall, but they hope to cover that from reserves that they amassed during the pandemic. They're really juiced with pandemic money right now, so they'll be able to uh, take that from reserves of $131 million. Uh, they do have to adopt this budget by April 1st, so that gives them uh, two months to do so. The big changes, I think, or the most notable changes that we've seen in the law department, uh, Bibb is uh, requesting a $1.1 million annual increase. He wants to add 10 workers there. That will help implement issue 24, which will create a new review board for police, uh, 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 what's the word I'm thinking for, disciplinary cases. He also wants to hire a chief ethics officer and settle all outstanding cases against the city. He's looking to add $2.3 million in pandemic response money to the Department of Public Health. That translates into 11 new positions. Nine of those would be staffing a mobile health program that will go around the county and bring health care to the people. He also is going to spend about $3.6 million on his cabinet, and that's up like $2 million from Jackson, what Jackson spent on his cabinet. Bibb is looking to create several new positions. We also we already know he wants some for the West Side Market for a lead abatement and also racial equity. Um, so, uh, yeah, not a, a whole lot of big changes, but we're seeing some of his, you know, the things he promised during his campaign come to fruition here. 
Seth, he rode into office with a big part of the vote, really soundly defeated Kevin Kelly, with a lot of hope placed in him that he would do some dramatic things to put Cleveland on the map. How much time do you think he has to come out with a big idea before people start to wonder if the hope was misplaced? Is it six months? Is it a year? Is it the whole term? Yeah, I think generally probably within the first six months to a year, kind of when voters really want to see something happen, um, regardless of what it is. That That's not unique to, you know, Bib or anything like that. That happens all the time, right? You get uh, people who come into office and say they want to be transformative in one way or another. And then if nothing changes in the first six months to a year, people kind of get deflated and say, oh, well, you know, just like every other politician. So, uh, yeah, I, I, that's a that's a pretty um, accurate timeline, I would say, for when you might see people getting um, impatient, so to speak. And look, it's a tall order. He takes office the first weekend of January, and by February 1st, he has to put together a budget of over a billion dollars. Clearly, he relies on the work done by the previous administration for most of the framework. But, you know, to get an understanding of that, to get your team together and get it, it's not an easy thing to do. So I don't think anybody's surprised that there's not some really big ideas in this, Lisa. It's just we are all waiting. Right, right. And, and we've really put a big burden on his shoulders. And and this budget, I'd, I'd like to add, this does not include the second half of that $511 million in ARPA money that's due. So that's not factored into the budget. And we also have to look at the Rita situation. I mean, uh, they're expecting $429 million, just like they did in 2021, from Rita taxes. And that's about half the general fund. But we don't know, based on lawsuits and people filing for refunds, how that's going to work out. So he may, may be facing some budgetary headwinds later. Yeah, definitely he will. A lot of people are going to be putting it for refunds probably starting this month. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is the battle for the U.S. Senate in Ohio really a battle of self-funded millionaires? Seth, is this what the founders had in mind when we created the U.S. Senate? It's just really a club for the ultra-wealthy? Well, I think we should hesitate before we go back to the founders because, you know, I don't think any of the uh, founding fathers who were, you know, sort of in the Senate when it began were exactly hurting or anything like that financially. (laughs) So um, I guess you could say, yeah, they did have it in mind because when you consider that – you know, from the beginning of the, it used to be just wealthy uh, landowners who could frankly vote, but that's, you know, a civics lesson for another time or anything. But we, we are seeing that in, you know, this Senate race, especially on the Republican side, really solely on the Republican side where, you know, I crunched the numbers yesterday and 72% of the money that Republican candidates are bringing in are from their own personal funds, right? Compared with just 20, around 28 a um, little less than 28% that are coming from individual donors, while at the same time you have a lot of these candidates saying that they have all this grassroots support and really kind of massaging their numbers to the public and, you know, saying, oh, I raised this many million, but, you know, leaving out the fact that, uh, you know, Jane Timken, for instance, said she raised $2.1 million from all these Ohioans and grassroots support, but, you know, when you take a closer look at the numbers, she gave herself one and a half million dollars. So she really only raised around 500,000. So, I mean, yeah, the, you know, right now that's kind of the, uh, the standard in the Republican race, except interestingly enough for Josh Mandel, who is the only candidate who has not given himself any money. So in this weird kind of 
um, I, I, there's just something kind of cosmically ironic about it, right? Where you do have all these wealthy people injecting their own capital into this race. And the guy who is arguably the front runner hasn't given himself any money. Are the, the biggest recipients of this cash likely to be the television stations? Are we just going to get blanketed by ads or some of these candidates oh, I, more innovative and, uh, and understanding that the voters may not really be watching local television? They might be much more active on social media and elsewhere. Well, I would bet that in a Republican primary, the, just because we know the Republican Party tends to skew a little older in terms of the voter base, that those people do watch more television, especially, you know, um, network news and uh, cable news. So, yeah, essentially, yes, the answer is I would expect there to be just a mass blanketing of advertising. We've already seen it, right? I mean, you have we're, you know, what, five months out, four months out from the primary, and you do, we already have candidates who've spent millions of dollars on ad blitzes, right? And, you know, they keep saying about, and then and they talk about it. They say, they look at me, look how much I've spent on this. I'm definitely gaining momentum in one form or fashion or another. <laughs> I, I just got to say, I've been watching Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy with my kids uh, mm -hmm. this month, this winter. And uh, yeah, there's the Matt Dolan shiny China commercial that keeps coming on and they're mm -hmm. so confused by it. And I cannot explain it to them. I, I am also confused by the mental in China content. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is just something that is probably going to continue at least for, you know, another couple months. I could see it actually waning a little bit as the primary approaches because, you know, at some point, you know, only one of these candidates can win, right? And at some point, you're just throwing good money after bad. So... I, I think you're going to see some real saturation probably in the next coming months as people try to like get out there ahead and, you know, really cause, cause kind of the end game of this is you want to get out as far ahead as you can, because that makes it much more likely that Trump is going to endorse you. And if Trump comes in and endorses you, then that kind of puts a dagger in the rest of this primary right now, there's no real clear front runner or anything. So it seems unlikely that he would jump in this race. Hey, let me, let me, uh, so, let me after it, ask you something that you're not going to be able to, um, to answer probably. Um, you, you saw on the national scene that the Republican party has said, we're not going to participate in the presidential debate commission debates. Have you heard any of that filtering down to the state level where the candidates are going to, avoid the more traditional and unbiased debate formats and just go their own way? Or is, or do you expect they'll, they'll debate anywhere they're invited because they're so desperate for attention? Yeah. I, I, so at the national level, it's a little bit different because whoever the nominees are, they command media attention no matter what. Right. Whereas you do, you know, in this, in, in a state-based race, people are just kind of less plugged in and don't know the candidates as well. It's just sort of how it's always worked. So I would, um, I would be a little surprised if, you know, the candidates just came out and said, no, I'm not debating no matter what, I'm just not doing it. Um, the no, only no, no, that's not that what I'm asking. That's not what I'm asking. What, what I'm, sorry, what I'm talking about is, you know, we, I'm a member of the Ohio Debate Commission. The goal of that is to put on objective third-party controlled debates where you're not with one party or the other, um, but which is what the presidential commission has been, and it's been a very successful format. But the Republicans have said, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to go our own way. And I've wondered whether... The, the Republican candidates would say, yeah, we're, we're not going to have others tell us how to debate. We're going to do it ourselves. I haven't heard anything like that, but I wondered whether you had. 
Uh, no, I hadn't heard anything like that. And honestly, I wouldn't expect it because it's kind of an all publicity is good publicity kind of thing. You know, you don't want to be the candidate who sits out a debate while the rest of them get into it. So because okay. uh, that means that, you know, your opponent gets TV time, screen time, whatever, you know, it gets in the newspaper and you don't. OK, you're listening to Today in Ohio. This is an oddball question, Laura. That what is the oddly fascinating story that we did on what happened to the Super Kmart's? Yeah, Kmart holds a special place in my memory. I think I told you this. In high school, we used to hang out at Super K in Montrose because it was open 24 hours and really nothing else in Montrose was. But at one point, we had 40 Kmarts here in Northeast Ohio that were part of 2,300 nationwide. But the last Kmart to close regionally was in Talmadge. That was just actually this day in 2020, so two years ago. And that store had been opened in 1975. Honestly, I had no idea there were Kmarts left around that long. There are 12 left in the world right now. And so the idea of Kmart was that it was this, it was ubiquitous at one point and it owned the market, but it was a middle of the road size. And so it kind of gotten taken over by the super Walmarts and the Walmarts of the world and basically because it didn't adjust to the growing trends. The, the, there's still hulking monsters of buildings that sit empty in many places, although Sean found some that had been repurposed. Yeah, Sean McDonald looked at, I think he looked at all 40 of these, almost all, and, and saw what had happened to them. Tearing down the buildings is more common than reuses. Some are a combination of retail spaces. Others are warehouses. You look a lot of old malls, they do the same thing to them. Some are sitting still vacant, but Kmart tended to be more in residential areas than places like Walmart. So it's not easy to find a spot to fill them. And they are very distinctive. If you were looking at the mid-century ones, I, I there's this one in Solon that became a Sears that I'm like, okay, that's the quintessential Kmart. The one uh, in Montrose that I used to hang out with became like a Home Depot and there's like an Asian restaurant in it. And I mean, it was that big that it has a Home Depot only takes up half the space. And I think there's a Levin furniture. So it, it, these do become eyesores. People worry about them and it becomes a headache for mayors and city councils to try to fill them because nobody wants a hulking big box store just sitting empty with a parking lot, you know, growing weeds and, and have vandalism. So it, but it, it's a really interesting read that, that Sean put together. Yeah, it's a cool idea, and he executed it well. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much will an independence woman receive from her police department for violating the state records law and not producing records? What was she after anyway, Lisa? Mary Jane Horton is an independence uh, resident who wanted to find out more about the Independence Police Department's quota policy. She saw a TV news story back in uh, 20, 2019, and it talked about how independence police officers have to you know, write 10 citations a month and have two to three traffic stops her shift. So, and, and it was focusing on a, an officer, Brian Dalton, who apparently was, was tapped for not getting his quota or not meeting his quota. So he filed a grievance with the police union. So Ms. Horton, she asked for copies of the quota policy, 
She wanted a written, you know, warning from the to the officer who didn't meet the quota, which was Officer Dalton. She wanted a memo on the traffic stop quota, and she also wanted a copy of the grievance that was filed by Officer Dolan via his union. So the Independence Police Chief Michael Kilbane did reply the next day, but he didn't provide the traffic enforcement quota, and he said he didn't have the officer's grievance uh, because it was in the hands of the union. So Horton filed a suit after 400 days of waiting, she filed the suit in March 2020. The Ohio Supreme Court gave her the maximum fine allowed under the public records law, which is $1,000, but they did not agree to pay her attorney fees and costs. So, you know, that won't be covered. Although Justice Mike Donnelly felt that she should have gotten that as well. So, um, and she also asked for, Ms. Horton also asked for $100 a day in statutory damages that was also denied. So, uh, interesting. I know that the, you know, Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer fights this every day, it seems like. I don't know. Do you get $1,000? No, generally not. Once in a while we do. We're getting some money for sanctions for, for somebody. But, um, but, you know, but we fight it because it's the right thing to do and we're the champions of it. When a private citizen does it and they're outlaying money to to make the government do what they're supposed to do, they should get reimbursed. And really, I was surprised the Supreme Court did not also award her attorney's fees. They should have. The law calls for that. And she should not have to spend her own money to get her government to do what they're supposed to do. These suburban police departments just play games with their residents. Independence is not known for being very resident friendly. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Chantel Brown defeated Nina Turner in their showdown for Congress last year, one that was closely watched elsewhere in the nation. Now they will face off again in the May Democratic primary. Seth, last week you said that because Chantel is the incumbent, she has an edge this time she didn't have last time. But who has the most money going into battle? Well, Chantel does have the uh, most money going in right now. Um, you know, she uh, ended 2021 with $333,000 in the bank. Uh, Turner had just around $114,000 in her campaign account. Um, that's not terribly surprising, especially when you consider that, um, you know, Turner hasn't really been actively fundraising too terribly much. I mean, she only raised around $87,000. Um, you know, in the three months of the, from the last reporting cycle, but she did spend a lot of money, which I thought was a little odd, um, around $230,000, perhaps not totally surprising considering she was gearing up for another run. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to read too terribly much into these numbers as they stand right now, just because the fundraising probably hasn't started in earnest. And we know Turner can, you know, she can turn the spigot on like it's nothing. I mean, she raised a million bucks like it was, you know, just easy, like walk in the park last time. So um, I, I suspect that there will still be some big money coming in, um, you know, here before too long. And she she just announced, right? It was like two weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. So so she barely has gotten into the game. And there's plenty of time, like you said. She will command some money. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where the lines are. I mean, that really is going to determine whether she has a shot. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with the Ohio Supreme Court. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How do Cleveland police say they significantly improved their rate for solving homicide cases in 2021? Lisa, we slap them around on occasion because their solve rate can drop pretty low compared to other big cities. But they did some things last year that made for a better rate. 
They did. And at the end of 2021, 64% of homicide cases were solved. That's the second best rate in nine years. Back in 2019, pre-pandemic, they had a clearance rate of 67%. And uh, they, we ha- they actually have increased their clearance rate in the last month. It's now up to 67% as of today. That's well above the national average of a 50% uh, closure rate. And we do want to say that these are not based on a conviction. The cases are closed with an arrest or, or, or if the suspect dies. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they've been convicted in court. So they've, they've uh, said there are a few things that they did operationally that helped with this. First of all, they added more detectives. They only had 12 back in 2018. They now have 22, although that's below the 38 homicide detectives recommended by the Department of Justice. However, four of those Cleveland uh, homicide detectives will retire in May. Um, Caseloads were a big issue. A lot of, you know, homicide detectives teams were catching a lot of cases. And, you know, they're supposed to only do about three to five cases a year per detective. But on the Cleveland police force, a, a lot of detectives had more than that in just one month. Another thing they did was they had like two detective teams. Now they have four detective teams that rotate on weekend and night shifts. What happened, one two detective team would get the night shift for a month. So they would catch all the homicides in that month. So instead of doing that, they're increasing the number on the teams and letting them rotate on a rolling basis. So not one team catches a whole bunch of cases. They're also, uh, they also have a real-time crime center analyst who is specifically for homicide cases, and that's doing a lot of good stuff. They have two FBI agents and one ATF agents that are working exclusively with, on Cleveland homicides. So they, they have done some things to help. It's good. It's just a nice, it's kind of nice to be saying some good news about Cleveland police because so much of the news we discuss here is not good. Uh, it, it had been a problem not having enough detectives. The Jackson administration had kind of starved the police department for both sex crimes and homicide detectives. And as you discussed earlier, there's some extra money in the budget for the police department. And so hopefully that'll continue to help out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much did the people seeking to legalize marijuana raise last year in their effort to force the Ohio legislature to pass the law? Seth, it sounds like a lot of money, but but the cost of getting petition signatures is very high, right? Yeah, so they reported raising $1.3 million, which does sound like a lot of money. But when I actually looked at it, I was kind of uh, – I was a little surprised because I thought back to – I don't know how if anybody remembers issue two. That was the uh, drug price ballot initiative. It was about four years ago, and you know I went back and looked because I remember just tons of money coming in then, and uh, all told there were there was around fifty fifty two million dollars that was spent in that campaign, uh, both for and against. So you know I looked at that, and the more I thought about it, this is this is probably. Um, an indication of, okay, this is what we have to spend to get it on the ballot. So I would imagine most of that 1.3 million went to, you know, ballot, you know, signature collections, like you said. Um, I would imagine now that it, um, you know, has been approved and sent to the General Assembly and may end up on the ballot that we'll start seeing a lot more money flowing to it, especially from uh, uh, the principles, which are a lot of medical marijuana companies. Well, you mentioned the the issue too. The, the difference in that one was you had strong support on both sides. The big pharma yes. companies were spending a fortune to fight it and others are spending for it. 
Would you foresee a big anti-marijuana effort being made? Who would fund that if that were to become a thing? Oh, um, well, the alcohol industry would be kind of a prime suspect in that, right? Um, have they I, I done, see that. Have they done that in other states? Have they funded anti- In other states, yeah, they have. Wow. There, there, there have been some states where they have done it. I think the, the writing's probably on the wall a little bit with that, but Ohio's a a little different than say a, uh, you know, a Denver or a Washington or a Nevada or a California. So maybe um, they might feel that uh, they have a better chance here, or uh, maybe they've seen, you know, I, I think there was probably some fear in the alcohol industry when these um, uh, uh, legalization efforts first started, they thought it was going to eat into their um, profits. I don't know if that has necessarily been the case or not. So maybe there's been a change of opinion on that. Um, the other side that you could see is, um, uh, really like uh, religious organizations, right, who aren't going to support that. Um, and not necessarily just church, but more like, um, you know, evangelical kind of packs of sorts. I think you could see a lot of money pouring in there. And I mean, it's 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 probably worth remembering that there are a lot of, you know, very wealthy people who are super anti-drug and may just want to fund it because they, they're just against it themselves. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this thing could very well balloon. The... The money was used to collect all the signatures, which we reported, whatever, a week ago that they had enough. So now the legislature has four months to pass the bill. And if they don't, these folks have to go out and collect another round of the same number of signatures. They would have to raise the money again because they they've spent their money. Right. Um, I'm not sure if they've spent all of their money, but I'm going to guess that if they're putting this money in to get it on the ballot from the get go, they're already assuming that the legislature is not going to pass it. So the money's probably there. No problem. Right. Um, that that's all kind of part of the plan. If this was just an entirely 100% grassroots operation, then it might be a little more difficult, but considering most of this, you know, more, I think more than half of it or around half of it came from the marijuana policy project. Um, the rest of it all came from, uh, dispensaries and growers. So you have to kind of assume that they came into this with a plan and said, all right, we need $1.3 million to, even just kind of get this through the initial stage, we're probably going to need another one, call it 1.3 to $2 million after it works through the legislature and then money on top of that as well. So that's got to be part of the, I mean, I assume it's part of the planning process because if it's not, then it's just really poor planning on their part. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio and that'll do it for a Wednesday discussion. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Thursday to talk about the news.